so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome listeners. Um, As you can probably tell or will be able to tell at certain points during this podcast, I have been nursing um, a cold. So I got the cough drop in and I've been taking some vitamin C the last couple days trying to get some rest. But um, I did not want to delay in doing this podcast. So here we are. Uh, We're going to continue in Romans chapter 15. We've got Lord willing, two more podcasts to finish the book of Romans. And it has been a, a journey through this book. There has been some, some um, passages that we've gone over that have been very intense, um, possibly new to your understanding. Um, if this is your first time uh, joining us in Romans 15, uh, welcome. But understand there's a lot that you have missed, a lot of precursor type things that that need to be understood um, as carrying devices throughout the entire chapter of just kind of Paul's progression through this entire book to these Christians who are in Rome. And so the previously that we just finished was Romans 14, and that was one essentially on making sure that all that we do is done in love, that even though we might have liberties towards something, even though we might have an understanding of what the gospel has given to us through the cross of Jesus Christ, we make sure that we who are strong bear with the failings of the weak who might not be as strong in faith or might not have as much of an understanding of what the gospel has given to us through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that's going to piggyback right into what we talk about in Romans chapter 15. So forgive me if there's a few times that I have to clear my throat. Forgive me if there's a few times I have to take a swig of water. Um, or if you can hear that I've got a cough drop in my mouth until that dissolves. Um, you know, I did not want to delay. I, I wanted to do this yesterday, but I just was not at a place where I felt like I could go more than five minutes without giving you guys a nice hack and cough um, in this podcast. So today, Lord willing, hopefully we'll be able to get through this entire thing. So verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So it's not to boast ourselves, uh, to, to puff ourselves up. It's not to brag about ourselves. It's not to pat ourselves on the back. It's not in any way even to please ourselves and make ourselves feel better about ourselves. It is to be from a place of genuine love. We who have the understanding of what the cross has purchased Namely, as what Romans 14 was about, the freedoms that we have from the old law, the law of Moses, the law of Torah, the law in which God had with his people under the Old Testament, that covenant that was established with the Israelites then, we are no longer under that. And that is something that I've covered at length through the book of Romans. I would encourage you to go back and look at some of those. However, my my premise of what I'm trying to bring about here is, we who have a freedom from these things, we might have an understanding 
have an obligation to bear with the failings of those who don't. If somebody believes that they still can't eat bacon, that they still have to refrain from eating certain foods because under the law it was deemed as such, bear with them. Instruct them, help to patiently teach them, but bear with them. And not to please yourselves, to, to puff up yourself and make you feel better about yourself, but through a source of genuine love which counts others more significant than themselves. So that means that if somebody has a conviction that they shouldn't eat pork, then don't go eat pork as some joke in front of them. If somebody has a conviction that you know they need to keep the Sabbath, then don't go out and do something right in front of them. Because how is that love? How is that counting other people more important than yourself? And that's what... Paul is trying to get these Christians to understand here. It's not that there's not such a thing as truth and absolute truth. Yes, you should help instruct them, but not do selfish gain or self-grandizement. You're supposed to do it in love. He says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. This is the concept of what's found in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, even in the matter of speaking in tongues, which is not an Old Testament thing. It's a New Testament thing. The concept of speaking in tongues, whatever you think, if you're a cessationist that believes that tongues no longer exist, or maybe you're somebody who's Pentecostalish in your background, and you believe that tongues exist and that everybody should speak in tongues, and that you're not really saved if you don't speak in tongues. Whatever your belief is, Paul makes it abundantly clear in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 that the speaking of tongues is for the edification of the individual, unless there's an interpretation. So make sure that when you come together that all things are done for the building up of one another, not just yourself. That is the premise of what the cross was all about and what our gospel is about. It's loving one another at the expense of yourself. And how we practically live that out in our everyday life is so important because it's not just giving your life for somebody. It's choosing to lay down your life for somebody else. I'm not talking about, notice the difference of what I said. It's not giving your life for somebody as if you're stepping in front of a car for somebody as you push them out of the way and you die so they can live. That is part of it. But the premise of what Jesus is talking about in John 15, no greater love is this than a man would lay down his life for his friends. That word for life is the word, um, uh, oh man, it just left me. I think it's sozo is the Greek word that's used there. And it means essentially it's your wants and preferences and your, your liberties, if you will, laying the things down in this life for the sake of somebody else. So it means you don't eat pork because you love them and you want to build them up. That, that's the premise that Paul's getting at. Let each of us please his neighbor. That, that word neighbor specifically has a connotation to the body of Christ. It's an old school or Old Testament word of love your neighbor as yourself. Is now being inputted into the New Testament to mean the body of Jesus Christ. As Galatians 6, 9, and 10 talk about where it says, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, but especially the household of faith. So what comes before even our love for the world is the love for one another. The household of faith. The beloved. Those who are born of the same blood from Jesus Christ. He says, For Christ, our, our example, did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who approached you fell on me. Now, you can find this passage, I believe it's in Psalm 69, uh, somewhere around verse 9. Um, <coughs> excuse me. You can find this passage there, and you're going to 
not have any idea that's referencing Jesus is all, if all you do is read the Old Testament. This is one of the most beautiful things for me in reading through the Old Testament is to see Jesus um, unveiled there. You know, Luke twenty four forty four says that the everything written about the about I'm sorry, everything in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms was written about Jesus. It, it just it talks about it, it all is pointing to him. Now, if you just read the Old Testament, then you're going to be oblivious to the to the fact that Psalm sixty nine again I think it's verse nine is talking about Jesus, but it's amplified and unveiled in the New Testament. Paul says it here through the authority of the Holy Spirit and the, and the um, yeah, I mean, simply just that, through the authority of the Holy Spirit. He says, the reproaches that, that um, the reproaches of those who approached you fell on me. This is where 1 Peter 2 comes in. There's so much that goes into this. And if we are truly going to uphold the cross, then this must be our mentality in all things. We count others more significant than ourselves. Even if it means that I have to go to a cross, whether it be emotionally, spiritually, physically, doesn't matter. Even if I have to go to the cross because of your mistakes. Think about that. Just just let that kind of sink in just for a little bit. Remember we've talked about it through, um, what was it, Romans 12. How are we supposed to treat those who persecute us? How are we supposed to love those who are sinners? You do it in the example of Jesus Christ. Because while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. And he goes on and he says this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we may have hope. So what's Paul meaning here? I think he's talking about two different things here. He says, through our endurance. Endurance in what? I would say it's our perseverance in doing what we need to be doing. If we're not doing what we should be doing, then you're not going to have a whole lot of hope. If you know that you're walking in intentional sin, then you're not going to have a whole lot of hope. Your hope is built upon the fact that you're doing what you should be doing, and we know that that obedience will always bring the hope of a blessing from God. Not material um, thing for uh, self-promotion and self-indulgence. I'm not talking about that. Don't get me wrong. Well, you know, this health, wealth, prosperity gospel or heresy that's out there today. But we know that it brings his peace. We know that it brings his joy. All these things manifest through the Holy Spirit. That when we choose to obey and endure in that faithfulness to him and that obedience to him, it produces hope. As well as the encouragement that we have from the scriptures. Now what encouragement is he talking about? I'll address that in just a moment. In 1 Corinthians 10, I want to um, read just a couple verses to show you that things in the Old Testament were written down as instructions for us. As what Paul just talked about here in Romans. He says again in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and actually more of a, a warning and a rebuke to the Christians. Um, not as much just an encouragement passage. Nonetheless, here's what he says. Now these things took place, starting in verse 6, took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. He goes on again and he says in verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You see, he says the exact same thing, that the things in the Old Testament of how God 
um, worked with his people and his relationship that he had with his people and how the people responded to God and his authority over them in their lives is an example for us. And he says, so that we might not desire evil as they did. I'd encourage you to go read all of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 through 14. But it's very important to notice that the things of old still have value. But as I talk to my kids all the time, and as I've talked about in 2 Corinthians 3, and as I've gone through in Galatians chapter 3, 4, 5, uh, many times I've gone through Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10, the law has come to have no glory at all. That's what 2 Corinthians 3 says. Because of the glory that surpasses it. However, does it still have value? Yes, but only in as much as it points us to the person of Jesus Christ. And to the example that we have of him on that cross. And so can I fully appreciate the New Testament if I don't understand and know the Old Testament? No, I can't. I can read the New Testament. I can get it. And God can work through the New Testament. That's all that I've got. And I can appreciate it. But can I fully appreciate what Christ did on that cross and what he's delivered me from and redeemed me from without reading the old? No, I can't. But the value that the old has is only in as much as it points us to the glory of Jesus Christ. That is it. Past that, it has no authority over us. Past that, we are no longer under it. It is no longer a schoolmaster, as Galatians 3 talks about. It's no longer a guardian. It is not what rules us and governs us. But it does still have value. But only in as much as it points us to Jesus Christ. He says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. And I think that that's a very important thing. Because he doesn't say, just live in harmony, agree to disagree, Lest you guys just find some things that you have in common and go out there and just have fun, live your lives. No, he says, in accordance with Christ Jesus. Who, by the way, in John 14, 6 says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. This is why I can have unity with somebody and maybe not agree with everything doctrinally, but I cannot have perfect unity. This, this is a big thing. Because we are in such a generation where we want to say denominationalism, we just want to agree to disagree and let's just get together and let's just sing some songs because we're all still worshiping the same God. And while there's, uh, there's some merit to that, I can never be perfectly unified with somebody who believes in Calvinism. I can never be perfectly unified with somebody who believes that divorce is okay. I can never be perfectly unified with somebody who would be a cessationist. You know why? Because Jesus is truth. And so if I'm on opposite ends of that truth, then I cannot be fully unified. I can have a semblance of unity, but I can't be fully unified. In John... 17, 20 through 26. Listen to what Jesus says. Because I want, to, I want to kind of camp out just on this thought, just for a little bit. Because a lot of times we are seeking for unity. But we don't seek for perfect unity. For a perfect oneness. That means it is without flaw. Here's what he says in John 17, 20, and I'll probably read through 23 somewhere in there. It says, I do not ask for these only. This is Jesus praying. And he's just asked for things to be given to these 11 disciples and who he's basically brought up. Judas has already left the scene. 
And he's praying for these 11 disciples and he's, he's prayed these things. And then he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's that? That's you and me. That's his church for the last 2,000 years. Everyone who has believed on Christ through the word of the apostle that's written down through the scriptures that we might have hope. Here's what he prays for us. That they may all be one. Now, I could just stop it there and I could say, you know, I'm one with my wife, right? It says that we've become one, right? And we can still have our differences. We can still have our preferences and our disagreements even. We can even have doctrinal disagreements and, and there's still a oneness that's there, right? But listen to what it goes on to say. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now that is such a crucial thing. He says, how the church is seeking to be one is a direct factor in whether or not the world will believe that Jesus was sent from God. Man, don't miss this. Go back and read it again. If you need to, stop this this podcast. Skip it back 20 seconds. Hear me say it again. Whatever you want to do, go back and listen to it again. He says this again in 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Man, did you catch it? Did you, did you catch the importance of us seeking to be perfectly one? Because if we're not as the church seeking to be perfectly one in truth, in accordance with Christ Jesus, then it limits the power of the message of the gospel. This, in my estimation, this is one of the this is one of the biggest blueprints that God has has essentially appointed for us as His church to live out, so that the gospel could have effect. It's one of the biggest things that He's put into the works. So it's not enough for us to just be content to just be one. He says, "I want you to be perfectly one." So yes, maybe you have some distinctions. You can still have unity in that. But don't let it stop there. Don't let yourself be content to just say, well, I believe that a person could choose to walk away from their salvation, but I believed in once saved, always saved. Uh, well, let's just let bygones be bygones. Who cares? What does it matter? Let's just have unity in the Spirit. I'm sorry, the Spirit's job is to lead us into all truth. It's not okay for us to be content to just say, uh, let's not worry about it. No. We need to, in accordance with Christ Jesus, pursue perfect unity because there's more at stake than just a congruent doctrine between two people. He says, perfect unity or oneness is what enables the power of heaven to generate the power of the gospel through his church. So it's not okay. He goes on, he says, that together you may with one voice. 
It's like what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 1, somewhere in that first chapter, it's like around 7 or 8, where he says, I, I appeal to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree, that there be no divisions among you. How can we proclaim with a perfect unified voice when we don't even agree on doctrine? We wouldn't even agree on the, on the gospel, many tenets within the gospel. How, how can we do that? But this is what Paul's urging. That with one voice you glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. He says, look, maybe you don't have it all together. Maybe, maybe there's some of you who are strong and some of you are weak and that's okay. Everybody has their starting place. Everybody's got their stuff that they're learning. But don't stop there. Don't stop and just be content in the weakness of, of incongruent doctrine. Press on. Ask each other the questions. Get into the Word and be noble like the Bereans in Acts. Was it Acts 17 when it says that the Bereans in, in Thessalonica, um, I believe is where it was. Now I'm getting confused without going back and looking at it. The point is, be noble like them because they searched the Scriptures together to see if the things that Paul stated were true. Don't just be content to say, oh, well, that's what you believe and we'll just, you know, we'll just leave it at that. We're not going to talk about it. No, talk about it. It's one of the most beautiful conversations when two people who are humble have disagreements on the doctrines and they just take it to the Scriptures to see. And it might take time. And that's okay. But that's our commission. So may we do that and do it well. And do it in humility. Knowing that God's Word has the final authority. And it must be congruent. He goes on in verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, meaning the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Second Peter 1, 19-21, essentially says that the things in which were prophesied of old were done so through the Spirit of Christ. In order to bring about the confirmation of that, God sent Jesus, confirmed those prophecies, and has now made it to where... Um, I have no idea what that is. Something is outside of this building um, and is not normal. So if it picks up on the microphone, I apologize. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm going to keep going. Uh, let me actually just read it. First, Second uh, Peter 1, 19-21. Here's what he says. Sorry, I lost my train of thought as I started listening to that. Second Peter 1, 19-21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed... To which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Remember, he's writing to Christians. This is not unbelievers that Peter's writing to. He is writing to Christians. He says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what is Jesus? He is the confirmation. Of those prophecies made by the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul's referencing here. Is the confirmation of the prophecies of Christ. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said rejoice O Gentiles with his people. And again praise the Lord all you Gentiles. And let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says the root of Jesse. This will be Jesus. Will come even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. 
Do you see what I was talking about earlier about how everything in the Old Testament is pointing to the coming of Jesus Christ? And the coming of Christ confirmed the pointing. And he says, so in so doing, we have hope. And this is why verse 13 says what it does. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. He says, because Jesus is the confirmation of all these things that have been written of old. And in many of these things, he wasn't even the one responsible for being the fulfillment of it. Like he, he had no control over where he was going to be born. He had no control over the fact that he was going to be coming from a virgin. He had no control over many of the things early on in his life. He wasn't able to, to bring about its fulfillment on its own. It had to be through the providence of God. And God brought all these things together so that Jesus would be the confirmation of these prophecies. Sorry, I'm, uh, it's actually my son weed-eating. And, um, yeah... <laughs> Okay, Um, in Hebrews chapter 6, I apologize for that. Um, All right, back to this. Hebrews chapter 6, 17 through 20. Here's what he says. Um, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He says we have strong encouragement to have, uh, I'm sorry, to have this anchor of the soul and to hold fast this anchor which is Christ Jesus. So it shows that we do have a hope, but we also have a responsibility in that hope. This is why there's a condition attached to verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. What's the condition? It's right after that. In believing. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in your believing in that hope. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. He says, look, God has made it all available to you, but it's all done according to your faith. And as your faith is is holding fast to the hope that we have in Christ, he says, the power of the Holy Spirit will cause you to abound. And he goes on, he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge And able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in order, I'm sorry, in the priestly service of the gospel of God. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And what does he mean by that? He means exactly what he talks about in 1 Peter chapter 2, I believe it's in 4 through 6. When he says that we are a royal priesthood. That we are the ones who are a spiritual priesthood. We are spiritual stones who are part of the temple of God. And it says that the sacrifices that we offer to God 
are acceptable through Jesus Christ. He has become our access. He has become our way of doing things. So that's what he's talking about. Sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In verse 17, In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. To bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to, um, I forget how to pronounce this one, Ilericon, I think is how you actually mean it, which is funny because it means the Lyric Band. It's like, who names a city called the Lyric Band? He says, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Now I know that I just did a whole lot, but if I'm being honest, I was trying to talk over the weed eating that's going on around this building. um, So that you didn't necessarily hear that as much, but you heard my voice. So here's the deal of what he's talking about here. He says, in Christ then... I have reason to be proud of my work for God. First Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. it says, Be steadfast and move will always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul says, I understand and know that when I'm doing things through the power of the Holy Spirit, when I'm doing things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and seeking to glorify and honor God in all that I do, I know that nothing that I do is in vain. You know, I've struggled with this concept many times in the 10 to 12 years of ministry that I did. There's many times in which I tilled the garden and saw no fruit. There's many times in which I was picking the weeds of the garden, the proverbial weeds of the garden, and I was doing all these things, and I saw very little fruit, and I thought something was wrong with me. I thought something was wrong in how I was ministering. Maybe I was doing something wrong. Maybe I had some sin that I wasn't aware of. Maybe I was interpreting something incorrectly in in doctrine. I just wasn't doing it. So God wasn't blessing it. He wasn't honoring it. And you know what I've come to realize? I've come to realize that, while yes, there, there might have been some things in which I did that were wrong. That doesn't mean that God wasn't honored. And I think Paul understands this. He says that, I can understand and know that when I do things with a genuine heart for His glory and His honor, that it's never in vain. It's never in vain. And may the Lord instruct us into um, the things that maybe we think wrong or teach wrong or do wrong. And we would be repentant of those things and we would change that. But if we genuinely are seeking to please the Lord in all that we do, it's like what Philippians 3 talks about when he says, if there's anything in which you think otherwise, God will reveal that. But hold accountable to what you have attained. And I think Paul is saying that very thing right here. I know that in the Lord my work is not in vain. If I do it for His glory and His honor, then it's pleasing to the Father. Even if it might be something that's incorrect slightly. And he has to kind of shift my perspective. He will. But he'll do it in his timing. He goes on, he says, I'm making my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, but where nobody's ever heard. And I'm going to say this. Everybody has their role. 
There are some people in which God uses more as evangelists who are going to go to the indigenous tribes, who are going to go to the places in the world to where nobody's ever preached Christ. And God has called these men up, like the Jim Elliots, to do this, and the C.T. Studs, and the Hudson Taylors. And he mightily works through these, these men and these women, the Amy Carmichaels who goes to India and starts an orphanage there by rescuing the temple children. These people have never heard of the message of Jesus Christ, but that's not everybody's calling. God has put in his church apostles, evangelists, teachers, pastors or shepherds. You see, not everybody's calling is going to go to the indigenous tribes to go preach the name of Jesus. That might not be your place. And I remember listening to a guy named Vody Bauckham who was talking about this concept one time. And it brought such a, a, a peace and a hope even and encouragement to my soul. Because I struggle sometimes with, I'm not, I'm not really good at being the one who's going to go to these, these tribes or these people who have never heard the message of Christ. My, my area of quote-unquote expertise, if you will, my, my specific role that God has kind of mapped out for me is to go to the people who have been misinformed of Christ. To go to the people who might have some doctrines that are not congruent and is causing confusion in the church. Or maybe it's causing a lack of blessing in the church. Or maybe it's causing um, people to not be fully unified in the church, in their truth, in their doctrine. That's, that's the place that God has given me a passion for and, given, and equipped me for. And it's not to say that I can't work in the other realm. But it means to say that this is my post. This is what God has planted me for. And it's not to say that maybe he doesn't change my post one day. But right now, God's put me on my post. And I would be disobedient to him if I didn't stay in that post. Same way for you. Maybe you're an evangelist. That's your equipping. That's your gifting. That is your calling. And you're exercising something else. What we need to do in the body is to not try to make everyone look just like us. What we need to do in the body is to make everyone look like Christ. And then God will appropriate and put you in the position or at the post that he wants you to serve in. As we each look like Christ. I hope that makes sense. Because you're not supposed to just look like you as you're trying to follow Christ. You're always supposed to look like Christ. And I think we would be doing a disservice to scriptures like 1 John 2.6 where it says that if anyone says that he abides in him, he ought to walk in the same way which he walked. That means we're supposed to be imitators of Christ. So you don't get to go off and say, well, my post is, is I got to do this, but I don't really look like Christ in my doing it. Or I don't really do it in accordance with Christ Jesus. Or I don't really do it in accordance with his word. I'm doing this, but God's called me to this. No, God doesn't ever do that. He's not going to call you to something that violates his word in that calling. So we each pursue to look like Christ. And in our post, we glorify, honor the person of Jesus Christ in accordance with his word. So if you're an evangelist, man, go evangelize. Go speak the truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ with all authority. Go out there and do it to the best of the grace that God will give to you and as you reckon to your account to go do it by faith and in humility. But do it in power. If you're a teacher in the church, man, teach what accords with godliness. 
bring about the words repentance even. Have a holy standard for what is supposed to be taught in the church. I can't stand it when pastors will hardly ever say the word repent to the church. Can't stand it when pastors don't stand for a holy living and hold people to it. Because I would say you're not a pastor of Jesus Christ. You're a pastor of your own thinking. You just slap the label of Jesus Christ to make other people feel better. He goes on and he says in verse 22, This is the reason why why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Because he was preaching the gospel. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions. Man, I love that. Isn't that an amazing concept of what Paul says? In his evangelistic efforts in the regions that he was in, he says, I don't have any more room for work here because I've done it all. It makes me think of C.T. Studd when he's 52 years old. He goes with Alfred, a guy that he really didn't even know. He just heard speaking who was trying to recruit a missionary to go with him to Africa because it was an unreached territory. (coughs) Excuse me. And CT was like, man, God's calling me to do this. Even though my body is frail, even though my body was giving out in my work in China, I had to move back to the England area to be able to let my body rest because of the climate that was in in China was not conducive for me. I was dying. So he had to move back. But then he gets this call to go to Africa. God says, he comes knocking on the door. He says, I want you to go. CT's like, oh, yes, I want to go. That sounds amazing. Go, Go reach these people that have never heard of you, Jesus. And I'll let you go read the story. There's a whole lot involved in it. But the point is, is he goes and he spends 20 years ministering, evangelizing. And he almost reaches the entire continent of Africa for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about that. Don't ever limit what God can do through you. All you have to do is be willing and let him handle what comes. And if he's going to use you to reach an entire continent of Africa like C.T. Studd, then man, praise God. And if he's going to use you to reach your own family, and that is all that ever happens, then praise God. He might get you up on a Red Rock Amphitheater in Colorado and you can preach to thousands at a time. You might fill out a stadium of 75,000 people and have an opportunity to speak to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you do, praise God. And do it to honor Him. And speak the word of God truthfully in accordance with Christ Jesus and the gospel of our Lord. But if all you ever do is witness to one thief on a cross and that's the only person that you ever bring to salvation and no one ever knows your name, Christ knows your name. And He's pleased. If that is all, even though you were willing to speak to the thousands, and even though you sought opportunities to do it, maybe you only get one person. Then praise God for that one person. That's not an easy thing for me because I want the grander. I want want a garden filled with fruit. I want to see fruit from my labors. Yeah, William Carey goes down as one of the greatest missionaries that we've ever known. And it took him seven years of constant preaching to, to reach his first convert. Are we okay with that? I love it. Paul says, I have no more room for work in here. And I've, I've, get, I've gotten to see some fruit and I've gotten to see a bunch of where it wasn't any fruit. But there's nothing more that I can do here. So my time has come to leave. 
And so leave he did. He says, And since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as long as I go to Spain, and to be helped in my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. You find this account at the end of Second Corinthians, or at the beginning of Second Corinthians eight, where it talks about this. And I love that account. I've read it before, so I'm not going to read it again. Um, but I encourage you to go read it because it talks about in the extreme case of poverty and affliction, they gave beyond their means to help the saints in Jerusalem. He says, for they were pleased to do it, indeed they owe it to them. For if Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessings, they ought to also be of service with them in their material blessings, referencing them as the Jewish people. And understanding that God shows no partiality in Christ, because he says there is no distinction. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. Because when you come into Christ, you are one and the same. You are a Christian. There is no one that's better than the other. There's a lesson Peter had to learn in Galatians chapter 2. And Paul had to rebuke him as a fellow elder in front of everybody to say, Dude, you're wrong and you're standing condemned. Because you're walking in the flesh and you're walking in the natural man thinking that the Jews have distinction over the Gentiles. So what is Paul meaning here? What I don't believe that he's meaning is that the Jews have a higher significance than the Gentiles as Christians. Because he's referencing the saints in Jerusalem and he's referencing the saints uh, um, here in Rome. Here's what I do think that he's saying. It goes into what Romans 11 teaches. The Jews were God's people. But they were cut off. At Copto, they were cut off. (coughs) Excuse me, I'm sorry. They were cut off and it was through their being forsaken, as Luke 13, 35 says, that us Gentiles get to have access through Christ. So we have to understand that there should be an appreciation of the Jews, but not an elevation of the Jews to a higher level. It's not like we, for one, absolutely and unequivocally, we as the church are not the the ugly stepchild to the Jews, who are the actual sons and daughters of God. They have been forsaken. They had their opportunity under the old covenant. Now God's made a new covenant. And he says the only way that you're going to go, that you're going to get in, is through Jesus Christ. Otherwise, sorry about your luck. You ain't getting in. I don't care if your ancestry is all the way down through Abraham. I don't care. I don't care if your lineage goes through David. You will not get in unless you come in through the, the name of Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean that we need to look down on the Jews. We should appreciate them. Specifically, Jewish Christians. And that's what Paul's trying to say here, I believe. Because as with um, Christ, there is no partiality with God. There is not the Jews are better than the Gentiles. We are equal partakers of grace in the person of Jesus Christ. And God sees no distinction. He loves the Gentile Christian just as much as he loves the Jewish Christian. He says, when therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Man, that's a beautiful encouragement. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. 
that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Now, it seems like Paul would be fitting to just finish the letter right there, but he doesn't. He chooses to write one more chapter. But I want to camp out on this part just for a second by sharing a couple verses with you for you to go look at in Isaiah 26.3 and Philippians 4.8-9. And I want you to understand that you have a responsibility in the peace of God being with you. And I'll even say as Philippians 4.9 says, the God of peace being with you. You might not know the difference, but one is the substance of something God offers. The other one is God himself. And it doesn't say that if you practice these things, the peace of God will be with you. It says the God of peace will be with you. So it doesn't put the emphasis on what God offers. It puts the emphasis on God. And there's this misnomer in the church today that no matter what I do, no matter where I go, no matter how bad I mess up, no matter what's going on, God's always with me. No, He's not. He might be always watching over you. But if you're going to go into the depths and the darkness of things, into sin and intentionality of it, God won't follow you there. He'll be watchful. He'll manipulate circumstances around you. Then let me give you an example of of what I mean. God gave the Israelites the promise that when you go into battle, I will be with you. So be strong and of good courage, careful to observe all that I've commanded you. So he brings a condition to his going with them. It's if you are doing what you're supposed to be doing. There's this account in Joshua 7 in which Joshua takes the men out to battle and they lose. 30 men die and they come back, they retreat back to their camp. They're like, what the heck happened? Joshua's confused. He says, God, I've got nothing that I've got going against you. Why did we lose? You said we would always win. And God says back to him, you've got sin in the camp. So they go, they cast lots. The lot falls to Achan. Joshua goes to Achan. He says, Achan, what have you done? Achan says, oh man, all right, I took some of the foreign stuff, the the treasures from our plunder that God said we weren't supposed to do. I stored it in my tent. I hid it underneath the ground. I'll go get it. I'll give it back and and I'm repenting of it. So Joshua, you know, Achan goes and does it. Joshua comes back. He comes back to God and he says, God, what are you supposed to do? God says, kill him. He brought shame to the house of Israel. Kill him. Then I'll be with you. You see, the, the issue is, is that God, it wasn't that he had left Jerem, uh, it wasn't that he left Joshua. It was that he couldn't go where Joshua was going because in the midst of the camp, there was sin. It wasn't even Joshua's sin. But remember that whole unity thing, the oneness thing? If one member suffers, we all suffer. 1 Corinthians 12, 26-27. If one member rejoices, we all rejoice. We're supposed to be perfectly one. And what affects one will affect the other. And if we as a church, if we've got sin in the camp, it can affect the very presence of God being among us. Same way it was was with Malachi. Whenever it says that with the priests that were there, Malachi's talking to the priesthood and, and they're talking about how they're robbing God. And the priests are like, how are we robbing him? And he says, by not putting my full tithe and contributions into the storehouse. So therefore... He says this, I believe it's in Malachi 3 and 4 where he talks about this concept. He says, so I've essentially retreated from you. I'm still watching over you. 
but I have retreated from you and I'm, I'm allowing the devourer to come in and to have his way. So if we're not practicing what is excellent, if we're not practicing the things that we need to be doing, then we need to be very careful to suppose and presume that God is still with us. Because otherwise, Philippians 4 says, if you do these things, then the God of peace will be with you. So Christian, listener, I pray that these things are something that you are implementing in your life, and if it's not, then I pray it's something that you begin doing. And as you do it, as John 13 says, I forget what the verse is, but it's the passage where he, right after he talks about washing the disciples' feet, he says, I'll give you an example so that um, you should know what you should be doing with one another. And if you do this, you'll be blessed in your doing. God is a God of action. And as we act upon the things that we're supposed to be doing, understand that that's where the peace and the joy and the comfort of the Holy Spirit and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit come about in your life. But if you choose not to, if you're not going to walk in accordance with Christ Jesus, then God won't be with you to bring about those things. And so hopefully this is something that you're doing. If it's not, then I pray that you would repent and that you would do it. And if you are doing it, you would do it more and more and that your love would abound through the power of the Holy Spirit so that you could be a living example of Christ to both his church and to the world. God be blessed.